to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. If you've ever heard the song, I Love Rock and Roll, you've heard today's guest. For more than a decade, Ricky Bird was a member of Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. His life as a musician started out like a lot of other stories you probably heard. As he rose to fame, his drinking and drug use also rose. He performed drunk and high on stages all around the world. Until he decided to get sober. And he credits AA with helping him in his path to healing and recovery. So whether you struggle with an addiction or you know someone who does, today's episode is for you. Some of the things Ricky talks about are what made him get help, why AA isn't for everyone, but why it worked for him, and how people can find their own path to recovery. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Ricky's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Ricky Bird on how to get help for an addiction. Ricky Bird, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Nice to meet you, Amy. You know, such a pleasure to talk to you. As I said before, we should should wait until this is finished before you say something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, before we press the record button, you and I chatted for a minute and I said about I don't know, two hours after we booked you on the podcast, I step, sit in the car and I hear, I love rock and roll on the wow. radio and immediately think this is amazing. I get to talk to a rock and roll hall of famer. So thanks for being here. Thanks for asking me. So how did you get into music in the first place and how'd you end up working with Joan Jett and the Black Arts? Oh God, I have to give you the short version. Hmm? I mean, I've been playing guitar since I'm nine. Uh, grew up in the Bronx. And, and I quite literally uh, saw the Beatles and the Stones on the Ed Sullivan show, which was a variety show uh, that we used to be on back in the 60s, also 70s, uh, that your whole family would sit around and watch every Sunday, right? So uh, the Beatles and Stones were on, I think it was 65. Yeah, I was nine. And um, I just, I kind of related. I mean, I always, you know, so, sort of pulling this together with recovery and addiction. Even as a kid, I was very shy. I mean, I'm not anymore, but very shy and I always felt a little left of center, you know, and I saw something in, I always loved music. There was always music in the house being played. And we lived with my grandparents for a while. So it was like thirties and forties music, but, um, we, New York radio was amazing. Um, AM radio before FM was invented. Uh, so there was all this cool rock and roll, but also they played Sinatra. It was all on one station. So I got my, my, I'm quite wide in the kind of stuff I like. Um, and, but the Sullivan Show, so the Beatles and the Stones came on. Love the Beatles, of course. But when the Stones came on, I just saw like Keith Richards and Jagger, and I was like, oh, that, I like that. Even at nine, I was like, well, that looks kind of reckless. And they kind of looked like I felt, if you, if you could understand that, you know. They looked left to center, you know. And um, that day, right after that, I, I asked my mom for a guitar. And I, I can't remember the timeline, but at some point, her boss that she worked for, she was in the handbag business, see. Um, and she, uh, he gave her a guitar for my birthday, a little acoustic, you know, brought it home to my first guitar. Uh, that guitar is in the rock hall now. So that's pretty cool. I donated it. That's very cool. So that's when I started. 
long story how I got to Joan. Um, but um, my wife, Carol, is working. Uh, she's, she's a publicist. She's working at a, a big a management company here in New York. Um, and they manage like Aerosmith and um, Def Leppard and, you know, different bands. And um, Joan and Kenny, Kenny, Joan's manager, the Bad Reputation record was out and they they didn't really have an office, but the, the they were friends with the owner of the management company. He gave them like a space in the office. It was a big office on, in the 50s. So Carol got to be friends with Joan. I, I had a record out in 78. Was, you know, we did a, I did a whole tour across the country with this band. I came back. I was trying to figure out what to do next. And it, it's a long story. I did a couple. I was working with John Waite for a little bit and this and that. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And Carol said, do you know who Joan Jett is? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I saw the Runaways at CBGB's. She said, do you want to go down to jam with her? You know, and um, I did. I did. And we got along great. Um, and I joined the band. That was in 81. And we did the rock and we did the all of rock and roll record. And then, uh, what point did your substance abuse start? Oh gosh, um, I started smoking pot when I was thirteen. Um, and listen, I, I used when I say I used, I used the term "used" for drugs and alcohol um, for eighteen years. You know, I wasn't. It wasn't every day at the beginning. I was. I mean, I smoked pot. I was only thirteen. You know, and then I was in a. We moved from the Bronx to Queens, and so I was in bands, garage bands. And with that came hanging out with other kids, other musicians. So we smoked pot, you know. And we, um, somebody would bring a six-pack of beer, Heineken, this and that, or whatever it was. And um, you start partaking. Now, the difference between myself and, and the others, my dad um, died of alcoholism, so did his father. And I have somebody else on that side of the family that's been in recovery for like 40 years. So obviously I have that particular addiction gene, that part of it. Um, so basically when other people, you know, that we were hanging with would say, yeah, I got, I got to go to home and do my homework. You know, I'd be like, well, let's, let's, let's smoke some more, you know? Uh, and that was basically the way it was. I never did one. I was always overdoing it no matter what I was doing. And it's just, it progressed over the years. It wasn't all horrible. You know, well, we were just teenagers, so we were like running crazy, as one would do when you're a teenager, especially in New York. And I was hanging out in clubs in the city. So when I started hanging out at rock, rock clubs with Phony Proof, um, famous rock, turned out to be legendary rock and roll clubs, where I paid my dues, I guess. Um, you would, I would hang out with older people, so they introduced me to pills, and so that's the progression. And throughout it all. Um, I wasn't one to know when to stop. Um, and, and I think uh, when cocaine started um, for, for my group and my age bracket, so, somewhere around 79, so, somewhere in there, I took to it like a duck to water. And um, I think uh, from, so from there to 87, you know, that combining with everything else just was a quick, well, it wasn't that quick, but that was the circling the drain part. You know, we did stuff before cocaine did it that you would wind up, you know, in strange places and this and that. But cocaine for me was the thing that really threw me over the edge and uh, took me down that path where, you know, you would mix that with some booze and some pills and you wouldn't know where the night was going to lead once you started. And once I started being somebody that has that gene and I have also the allergy they talk about in, in you know, 12 step groups, when I take the first one, all bets were off and you wouldn't have any 
power to stop, no matter what anybody said, no matter how you were physically, no matter what you did to your family, uh, you know, whatever behavior, you, you just couldn't stop. And um, so that went on until I was turning 30. Um, I was, you know, I, I, my stuff is visible because there's videos on YouTube. <laughs> I was 128 pounds, you know, was the heroin involved? We, we snorted a little bit. I snorted a little bit at the end and it was mixed with, with cocaine. I later found out from a friend of mine who's been in recovery as long as I have now. And he was uh, somebody we used to use with. But I wasn't, I never got into you know, shooting needles or anything like that. But um, the way I explain it is there were people that did uh, more than me. Uh, there were definitely people that did less than me. But I did enough where I thought that uh, I was coming to the end of the loop you know, the end of the line. And when I was turning 30, I said I was going to stop. And um, from 30 to 31, almost 31, because my birthday's in October and I got clean September 25th, 1987. That was my first day. So from October of the previous year to that, to September, I actually tried to stop. And that's where all hell broke loose, you know, and I have a diary. I still, I, I save all my diaries. For what reason? I have no clue, but I save all my diaries. I guess for, for, for one reason is it has all the dates that I played with Joan, which I can't remember at this point, but, um, and everybody else I played with every day for that, from that October was okay. Tonight we're just going to go out for a nice meal and have a club soda. And, and, and then next day it was always the same. Okay. We're going to start today. And this went on. And because I guess I was hating myself that I couldn't stop. You, you kind of pound, you, you punish yourself by doing more, mm. you know, uh, which is a whole, that's a therapy thing probably um, but um august of 87 i um we went to a wedding and we we're sitting next to they put us at a table at your friends right and there was a friend of ours that we used with on occasion a girl named jill and um i leaned into jill as i would do at that point and say Are you holding i probably whispered it uh, my three favorite words at the time right Are you holding and she said, no, no, I'm going to these meetings and I'm doing this and I don't use it anymore. And immediately my brain was like, good for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, my head turned to look to see if there's anybody else that looked like a victim. Um, but she planted a seed, which, you know, now, which is what I try to do in recovery, plant seeds. You can't get anybody clean, but you could plant seeds and, and you know, point them in the right direction and help them through it, the journey. But you can't make anybody straight you know, drinking and drugging. But um, so that was August, September 25th, two in the morning, you know, standing in front of the mirror, had that, had that moment. Uh, everybody has a different moment. You know, I just looked like um, Dracula. <laughs> and um, I was all kinds of high. And, uh, and um, I picked up the phone, I called Jill. And she took me to my first meeting the next day in New York City. And I've been going ever since. Wow. Believe it or not, that's the short version. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of people, I'm a therapist, a lot of people will come into my office and they'll say, well, I don't really have a problem because I only use on the weekends or I only use or I know somebody who uses more than I do. Uh, we don't really define when substance abuse becomes a problem by how often you use or necessarily how much you use when you do, but sort of by the problems it causes in yeah, your life. That's our, that, that's our answer to when people ask us. When they say, right. say that to us in recovery, it's like, it's not how often or how uh, much you use, it's what happens when you use. If you use if you use once a week and you get drunk and you you know drive your car into a family, that's probably a good sign you should stop. 
Right. That it causes problems at work. It causes problems in your relationships. You right. start to, your health is declining. In your case, what kind of problems made you realize that, okay, I, I want to stop this? Well, the 128 pounds is probably a good sign. Yep. <laughs> For somebody that was like 30. Um, I mean, I wasn't physically well. You know, I collapsed my lung uh, in 83 on the road with Joan. And that was from drug use. And it was from like, you know, it was probably from a specific moment that I remember uh, when I smoked a little, you know, free base, as they called it back then. I'm so out of what the kids call things now. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think I burnt a hole in my lung in any event. And um, I wound up, my lung collapsed. It was called tension pneumothorax. It happened in Opelika, Alabama. We were playing. And by the time that I got to the hospital, they took me to the hospital. Because at first they thought that we were playing, uh, I think we were playing with maybe the police. So, it was, you know, we would play in a big stadium in a town and then, it, we, if we didn't have a gig the next night, we'd stay in town and we would play a club on our own, right? Mm -hmm. So we played a college that happened on stage. It actually happened right before Crimson and Clover, believe it or not. And um, I felt this incredible weight on my chest, which is what collapsed lung makes you feel like. Um, they took me to the nurse's office. She said, you probably uh, pulled the muscle. She gave me muscle relaxers. Now, if I would have gone to the hotel and taken notes, that would have been it. Later on, they told me that I attention to my my heart moved to the other side. You know, it was moving to the other side. It was very serious, and I had like ten minutes to go. Wow! And if I would have gone to the hotel, we, I remember our road manager took me back to my room after the gig. Somehow, I managed to play the last song because I'm a trooper, and the show must go on. <laughs> um, got me back. I lay down in my room, and I shot back up. I couldn't breathe. Right, and they took me to the uh, hospital in Opelika, Alabama, and I was there for like, I think three weeks. I woke up, my wife was there. You know? um, but that was, that, that should have been it. Yeah, that should have been it. But uh, it was not. And I went on from 83 to 87. I mean, at first, I mean, I remember him telling me uh, I couldn't smoke pot anymore. Remember, I had no clue what recovery was at all. Um, couldn't smoke pot anymore. I've been smoking since I was 13, right? He said he had the beginnings of emphysema. Okay. And I sat across the table as I was being released to the head of the hospital. And I said to him, this is with 1983. Well, what about cocaine? And he actually looked at me and he said, in moderation. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Because that's what they thought back then, right? Moderation. Mm -hmm. But that's not how cocaine worked. Um, so, um, yeah. So I tried to, at the beginning, I got back to New York. I didn't smoke pot. I didn't do coke. But now that, I, now that I'm 34 and you know, three quarters into recovery, I know that having one Heineken for a person that has a brain that's alcohol, uh, you know, and drug uh, ready, um, that triggers everything else. Uh, it, 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 well, so you have one Heineken. This, this is what happened. I have one Heineken. So that lets you guard down a little bit. So then you have two. After three, you're ordering Jack Daniels. After two of those, you're making phone calls to the drug dealers, right? That's, right. how, that's how addiction works for me. I guess it's different for everybody. But um, so that was it. So it got worse as time went on. And physically, that was the main thing, you know, because it was a very serious business. Uh, I remember towards 87 when I would eventually, obviously, I started doing coke again. And um, I would hold my chest because I would get these like spasms from it. Yeah, it was just a mess like that. And, and all kinds of stuff would happen. You know, it was more, it was behavioral stuff. It was how you treated people. It was, you know, 
all the stuff that goes along with addiction. And there's this belief out there that you have to hit rock bottom, which, you know, like, okay, you had a collapsed lung that, okay, this is this awful thing and that would make you get help. But that's often not the case. You just looked at yourself in the mirror one day and, and decided that that it was time to get help. It wasn't in the midst of a crisis. Is that what yeah. you'd say? Yeah, and everybody has a different bottom. I mean, right. there were people, I never went to prison. You know, there were people that have been in prison four times for drug-related stuff and they come out and they just start using it again. You know, everybody's got that moment. See, here's the way I feel. Like, recovery is always there. It's like this big planet, right? And and we're, we're in these little spaceships, like this addiction thing, right? You know, or it's a satellite recovery, right? And we're just floating here. And hopefully at some point they go, you know, it's got to be like the message and the person. Has, the person has to be ready. The message is always there. The person has to be ready. Hopefully you don't miss the message or the person that's bringing you the message. Um, and that's what I found all these years in recovery, talking to people. Everybody has different, you know, if you, if you, if you do a 12 step stuff and AA, you know, which is where I started, actually it was, um, drugs anonymous and then i went into aa um the way bill w bill wilson you know he had that time and time again he kept winding up in the same hospital he just lost all his his it was a, like he was a big shot like wall street guy he lost everything he just kept doing it he kept saying i'm done you know i'm done and then somebody would he'd find a justification to drink um and finally he had this they told they told his wife lois uh, the doctor at this hospital here in New York said, uh, you know, eventually, it's pretty soon he's going to have a wet brain and that's going to be it. But he had this white light thing that, that some psychologist and psychiatrist uh, from from uh, centuries back wrote about that some people have this this white light thing where they see higher power or whatever, or, or they just have this thing which is like their clarity, their moment of clarity, and their direction changes. Um, I, I don't know if I had a, uh, I didn't have a, I was standing in front of the mirror and I just said, you know, this is not going to end well. Cause I'm like a sarcastic, I, I just, I said, dude, you always wanted to look like Keith Richards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think you did it. <laughs> and for you with or 12 steps meetings, is that what helped you to, to get sober? Or did you do anything else? No, I didn't go to rehab. I remember it was 87. So there was not a, there was Betty Ford and there were others, but not like today. Um, I had my, my, uh, a family member, my uncle would send me while, before this guy came into the rooms, he sent me, uh, in the mail every once in a while, and we laugh about this now, a, uh, pamphlets. And I was like, why is he sending me this stuff? Like, what is this? You know? And he was planting seeds. Unfortunately, I used it to put my, my drinks on, on the table. So I wouldn't win the table, but, um, you know, we plant seeds, um, and and I started off there, and I just fell in love with it. And why did I fall in love with meetings? Because, you know, like we talked about before, I was certified as a counselor, and I didn't get to do a lot of it. I did it like three or four months before the pandemic at a place. And I'd have like kids in their early 20s telling me, ah, I don't like those meetings. I hate those meetings. I can't stand those meetings. You know, we were out in Staten Island. That's where the place was. And I said, well, and going, you know, too many people know me here. Well, go in the city. Ah, it's too much trouble. I'm like, dude, did you cop in the city? I mean, did you get on the Staten Island ferry to go into the city at, you know, one in the morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I was lucky. I walked into my first meeting here in New York and I just fell in love because even though I looked different, so it was 87, it was about to hate myself for loving you period with the black heart. So yeah, my hair was really long. I was probably all rocked out and stuff. I went to this meeting 
no, I didn't look like anybody in the meeting. But when they started talking, I could identify with everything everybody said. And everybody was so friendly. And, and, and let's face this, we all want to be part of something when we're kids, right? Yep. People, people go into cliques, they join gangs, they, they join bands. You know, everybody wants to be part of something. Um, I just felt very welcome. Uh, and I just started going. And at the beginning, it was like there was the meeting after the meeting where people would, you'd go to a luncheonette uh, you know, or a diner here in New York and you would sit and you would, there would be like 30 people from the meeting talking. So that's been my go-to all these years, still is. Uh, you still go? Oh, for sure. I mean, I just started going back live. Um, I found a meeting uh, that I took, you know, I take the pandemic very seriously. Yes. And, um, and I know quite a few people that did not make it, including uh, Alan Merrill, who co-wrote I Love Rock and Roll. He died right at the beginning of this from COVID. But um, a couple of people from meetings, every time I go to a meeting, they tell me that more people passed in the last two years. Um, but I, I oh, sorry, sorry. So uh, yeah, I started going live, but it's a big church room. It's huge. Everything's split, you know, seats are spread out and stuff like that. And uh, during the pandemic, early on, very early on, I am not anonymous, right? I mean, I'm anonymous. I mean, I'm talking to you here, but I'm, an I'm anonymous with my means of, you know, how I stay sober. Like I, I don't say I go to AA meetings. I say I go to community support group meetings. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but, but on my social media pages, I talk about recovery, which means people come to me, you know, and during the pandemic, uh, the first two years, I got a lot of people talking to me about stuff about that they're struggling and this and that. And I tried to help um, by chatting. If you want to chat, DM me, huh? we'll chat. And um, somebody came on, asked me to speak at a meeting out of Florida, a men's meeting. I said, yeah, cool. And I did, and I fell in love with this meeting, right? Uh, out of Boca. And I, I was on there like the first year and a half, like every day at noon, it's a seven day a week meeting. And I just had the best, I, 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 I've got like four or five really close friends now from this meeting. I haven't been on in ages because I started going back live. Mm -hmm. And um, that was like, if you want to ask me, um, like, how did you do this through the pandemic? Well, I've got 34 years plus of uh, recovery tricks in my trick bag that I learned all this time. And one of them is to keep doing the work, uh, the recovery work. See, you got to not isolate. Isolation is just the worst thing for addicts and alcoholics. If you're alone long enough, your brain will tell you that you're not that bad. Mm. And maybe I could just have one. Um, so uh, isolation, top of the list. Okay, so what do you do? Dude, Zoom, you know? Wow. I mean, I kept picturing, you know, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, the co-founders of AA, looking down going, well done. Nice. You know, so technology did help us with this. Because you know, I went to meetings all over the world. Before this happened, bunch of touring, but during Zoom, oh, there's a meeting in Belfast that, you know, and so that was really cool. The other thing is, is helping other people. Mm -hmm. Isolation, because isolation will take you out quick. Helping other people is huge. So whatever your thing is, you know, if you're in recovery, reach out to other people that are struggling. You know, talk to your friends that are in recovery. Keep that dialogue going. There's always so everybody's so trauma, traumatized, even though they might not admit it right now. What we just went through. First of all, we all thought we were going to die. I mean, not everybody, but here in New York, it was insane. You know, that first year. Right. 
uh, ambulances, people, I mean, more trucks outside the hospital. It was just insane. So we didn't know what was, it, it was like a bad movie. Um, I think you're a therapist, you, you know, like I think the human brain is built to suppress things almost and sort of protect us, which is why a lot of people have childhood trauma and they grow up and it kind of sprouting out like all over the place. They don't even know why. Right. But it's, you know, a bully, you know, beating them up behind the school or your father telling you you're going to be nothing when you grow up, whatever it is. We have this ability to suppress it and forget about it. We have built in forgetters. And that's a, that's a 12 step thing, too, which is why you got to keep your eye on the ball. So I think um, a lot of people now, I mean, the behavior outside, you've got to, in this country right now, uh, you have to put some of that on the trauma from being inside for two years. And, you know, there's all things attached to it, gun violence, this, that, but but people acting out uh, because they were suppressed uh, for the last two years and scared, even if they didn't want to admit they were scared. I don't know how you couldn't be, but um, especially if you know people that passed away from it. Right. So I think there's a lot of that going on. Um, and and so the, what do we do? What do what person recovery do? Dude, you just lean into recovery, man. That's that's the best way to fix it. You know, that's, I mean, life will happen whether you're in recovery or not in recovery. Uh, and bad things happen when you get into recovery. But there's no reason to drink or drug over anything. I've learned over, over all this time. I mean, I just had a friend of mine who had about five years call me last week um, and say, um, I, I can't believe I, I drank last night. I just couldn't take the pain of what's going on in this country. The news, the constant news, the bad news, um, you know? And I said, okay, you know, I mean, this is what I learned and how I feel. No judgment. It's like, I totally understand. I mean, it's hard for me also. Yeah. But you don't have to drink over anything and be, be sure, make, no mistake, drinking and drugging will only make it worse. So, oh, well, what do I do? We'll go back to a 12-step meeting tomorrow, because that's what she was doing, um, and then help somebody that's, that's struggling. Grab somebody that's struggling. That's the incredible cure for life in general. Be of service somehow. Whatever it is, whatever your thing is, everybody's going to take whatever charity, volunteer, you know, that's un- incredible. That's the best drug in the world is helping somebody else. So I hear a lot of uh, people who are hesitant to go to a 12-step meeting. I'll hear people say things like, well, it's too much about religion or uh, the only people that go to those meetings are just uh, mandated by somebody else. They don't actually believe in it or it's boring. What do you say to somebody who's hesitant to try a 12-step meeting? Um, I say, dude, if your life's on the line, try anything that somebody suggests. If you don't like it, then there's a lot of other recovery methods these days. I don't, I don't, I mean, when I do my recovery music groups that I've been doing around the uh, country for the last maybe 10 years or something, um, the first thing I open with is like, I'm not here to sell you on 12-step groups. That's just the way I did it. There's other recovery out there. Whatever makes you feel, whatever keeps you on the right side of the grass, baby, that's what you should do. But I love the, rec- I love 12-step groups because of the camaraderie. I mean, it's, this is really hard to do alone. I'm not saying, I mean, everybody's different. Do some people recover alone? Okay. Fabulous. Good for you. But it's very difficult to do alone because you have that inner voice that's telling you you weren't that bad. Right. Or, or the word, three words you'll never hear me say is, I've got this. You know? So that's what I would tell somebody. It's like, dude, just, just try it. I mean, that's what I was telling those kids in that as a counselor. I was saying, hey, man, 
just try it. If if you don't if you don't if you don't go into a meeting and you hate it immediately, a couple it's could be because of a couple of things. You're not ready. Like your brain is looking for outs. So you go, I hate this. This is awful. You know, if you're desperate, like the gift of desperation is very powerful when you which is why that I have to keep doing recovery now because I don't have the gift of this the gift of desperation anymore. You know what I mean? After all this time, I, I don't have that. As bad as things get, it's never going to be as bad as it was back then, right? You know, people pass away, people get sick, you don't, you can't pay your bills, this happens, you don't get what you want. It's never going to be as bad. And I, lo- I learned tools to deal with all that. But when you're first struggling, and especially these days with fentanyl or, or you know, all the stuff that's going on, that you've got desperation, that's why you reach out, you know? So I just say, Look, man, uh, you know, you've run out of dance tickets, man. It's like, go try a meeting. If you don't like it, if you don't like AA, try a CA meeting. Maybe that's more your style. If the people are too old, find a younger meeting. You know, there's thousands and thousands of meetings. And in the end, if you think you've given it enough of a try, then try one of the other methods. Whatever keeps you alive, you know. That's the joy of the world we live in now. I'm sure you've seen a huge shift in recovery since you uh, first entered it, but there's medication, there's therapy, you can do online therapy, you can attend groups online. We have plenty of rehabs, outpatients, intensive outpatients, the list goes on and on. So there's usually something, if one thing doesn't work, try the next thing on right. the list. And the goal, uh, I think, I'm sure you would agree, is to, to not die. Yes. That's the goal, right? There's no other goal. That's the goal. Right. Right. Um, and and when, if you do that, and if you find recovery, your life will change. Now, whether it's for the better, that's up to you how much of a you put into it. But your life will change, probably for the better. I mean, it's definitely going to change for the better as far as, you know, behavioral. If you want to get further along, that's up to you and what you're good at and what you want to follow. But, um, and there's no promises about it in 12-step about, like, you know, about, like, cash and prizes. But but the thing is, um, the only thing that I know is that 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 thing of like um, I got to watch my words here. I know that total abstinence works for me. Like I can't understand how you could, um, and I can understand doing certain stuff at the beginning to get you to square two. But I, I can't like I couldn't say to you like yeah, I've been I've been clean like thirty five years so almost 30, I could smoke pot now. I don't think I could. But maybe I could. I don't know the answer to the question because I never did. The big question is, do I want to take the chance? Right. Right. It's all about life's about odds, right? So the odds are if I don't drink a drug a day at a time, I'm not going to get high or I'm not going to screw up the world, you know, my world or the world. So, so um, saying that, I, you know, that I, I, I don't want to shoot heroin anymore, but I still want to um, do cocaine. Okay. I, I don't know what to say. Fabulous. Last question for you. To somebody who's listening to this and they think, yeah, but life in recovery is not going to be as good. It's either going to be boring or I won't be as successful because I won't be as creative. What would you say to somebody who has those fears about getting into recovery? That's nonsense. I've I've been asked that a million times. I've only gotten better in everything I do. But I want to talk about all sober. Okay? Yeah. That's the key to this whole thing. Um, one of the things that I know for sure, I'm very excited to start that I'm going to start working with them now, or I am working with them now because that's why I'm here today, is, is what I found is a lot of confusion out there. Um, I've been getting, for all these years, because I'm not anonymous, people's parents, you know, kids talking about their parents, parents talking about their kids, 
my kid's going to, you know, really big trouble. Can you help me? Can you find me a place? You know, and I would never recommend a place because that's, I don't, I don't vet places, you know. Right. So I turned them on to people that I know do vet places, right? So what I'm saying is there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all in one place. See? Um, and, and, and once you start recovery, it's a big journey. You can start getting your life back. Then what do I do with my life? How do I stay in the community? Like, where's the recovery community? Where do I find meetings? You know, yeah, it's all there, but it's all separate. Like if I go, if I want to know of a meeting at noon, I just go on Google. But it's very, if for somebody that's starting out, it's a lot, very confusing. Or for parents that are, have kids that like that, when they want to help themselves. Also, this platform, whether it's the, um, the free app, by the way, um, or allsober.com is insanely great because it's going to put everything in one place that you could find. Um, they have uh, different... Uh, can I read something? Sure. Because I don't want to say the wrong stuff. Okay. What is All Sober? That's your question. The platform features seven key sections that cover the entire journey from addiction to recovery. Help and information, right? So where do I get help? What insurance does this place take? These, I'm telling you, these are questions that I always get asked from people. Me too. Yeah. Um, okay. What did I say? Help and information, group support. That would be some sort of 12 step or smart recovery or this or that, the other. Treatment and recovery. Okay. That tells you what it is right there. Community. It's like, where do I find other people like myself that are in recovery that I could hang with? You know, relaunch is like, okay, now what do I do? Like, where I don't, I haven't worked in six years. Like, I don't even know what I do anymore. My, t- my 24 7 job for the, the last 10 years has been drinking and drugging. Right. By the way, that's got lousy benefits. I mean, just mention that. <laughs> um, sober lifestyle style and inspiration, which is hopefully where I fit in. Um, so it's amazing that it's going to be all in one place. Now it's to get the message out to everybody that you could get all sober going. If you've got an iPhone, go on the app store, download the app, uh, and, and go to check out allsober.com. You know, and we're going to be doing, from what I've been told, we're going to be doing shows. Uh, you know, uh, on the inspiration side, recovery shows. Um, I'll be going out on behalf of All Sober to do my recovery music groups at treatment facilities. Hopefully out, you know, New York, the tri-state area, but hopefully all over the place because I haven't seen the country in a while. And um, I'm just proud and excited. I can't wait to see what's coming up next with this. But I mean, why they asked me, they told me about what this was. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what's missing. One-stop shopping, you know. Uh, now that now the thing is to get the message out to people, uh, you know, let the treatment facilities know. Yeah, you gotta you gotta sign up for this. This is great. And, and on that side of it, um, and therapists and this and that, maybe I could do recovery coaching through all sober too. That'd be cool, right? And then um, also um, on the side of people, is getting the message out to people. It's like, dude, you need this. This is this is just go on here. Put your state in. Put your zip code in. You know, and, and it'll tell you what places are there. They've, they've all been properly vetted. Because uh, I kept asking them before I started doing it. I said, this is vetted, right? These places, are yes, vetted. They're vetted. How many times are you going to have to vet it? But I'm very sensitive to that because there's a lot of tomfoolery out there. You know? Right. And it, it's killing people too. You go into the wrong place. So I'm, I'm very secure in the fact that they do that. And um, I think that um, as this progresses and, and the word gets out there, and we start spreading the message, I think it's going to be a huge help to the recovery community, whether you're struggling or, or, or already in recovery. 
I'm sure it will be. We'll link to it in our show notes because so many people struggle and I get those same questions of where do I get help? What should I do first? How can I help somebody else? So yeah. we'll make sure that we link to it. And thank you so much, Ricky Verb, for sharing your story with us and the tools that have worked for you and the resources and the message that you keep spreading because you're practicing what you preach by putting yourself in service to others. It's important to uh, uh, to keep to, to lean into life and to do good things. And especially in a world that's a little backward, sideways right now, you know, keep your side of the street clean and try to help the other side, you know, and, and you do that by doing some sort of service. It may not be, your thing may not be recovery. It might be uh, another part of uh, mental health struggle or, or different illnesses, like help, volunteer. Do, it doesn't take much time. And I swear to you, as I'm sitting here, it makes you feel better. And when you feel better, you don't want to hurt yourself. How's that? That makes so sense. So therapy. It? The That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Ricky. All right. Thank you, Amy. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Ricky's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that Ricky shared. Number one, plant seeds. If you know someone who's struggling with an unhealthy habit, a long lecture about why they should change isn't going to change their behavior. So I like that Ricky talked about planting seeds. You never know how something you said might stick with someone and grow later. We often talk about this idea as therapists. Sometimes people come to therapy because they're exploring ideas and they're thinking about changing, but they aren't quite ready to take any action. But hearing information from other people, when they're receptive to hearing it, can plant some seeds. At a later date down the road, they might remember something they heard and they might decide to take action. But you just never know when that moment might be. Most people I know who changed their lives didn't have a rock bottom moment that made them change, at least not the rock bottom moment that you might expect. They might not change when they lose their jobs or have a serious health issue, but they might just wake up one day and decide they're ready to change. Of course, there are times when a major event, like a near-death experience, does motivate people to change their lives. But even with those experiences, it's often those little seeds that were planted over time that really inspire change. So if you see someone who engages in self-destructive behavior, don't take it upon yourself to try and change them. Know that you might be able to inspire them with your healthy habits and by occasionally expressing genuine concern. But if they don't change, just remind yourself that you're planting seeds and you can't control what happens to the seeds once they're planted. Number two, don't isolate yourself. So often when we're struggling with something, we keep our struggles a secret and the isolation makes things worse. Ricky says this is true with addiction, and that's why he's encouraging people who are struggling with substance abuse to connect with others. There's a popular TEDx talk called Everything You Think About Addiction Is Wrong. The speaker's name is Johan Hari, and he shares how the opposite of addiction is connection. When we feel connected to other people, we're less likely to engage in unhealthy behavior. We all need a sense of community and to feel like we belong and that we matter. For Ricky, AA meetings prevent him from isolating himself. For other people, though, a spiritual group, a volunteer group, or just a group of supportive friends might be helpful. But the important thing to remember is that isolating yourself makes everything worse. If you don't know where to start or how to connect with other people, a 12-step meeting could be a good place. Number three, find your own path to healing. Ricky made it clear that AA works for him, but that it's not for everyone. There are many paths to healing. We've had several different people on this show who talk about recovery and how they finally got help. 
Jared Watson said he turned to self-help. Brian Abrams went to rehab. Some people find medication helps them manage an addiction. Other people say outpatient therapy works well. In today's world, there are tons of options from apps to online sober coaches. There are plenty of opportunities to explore what might work for you. So if someone insists that you have to do one specific thing to get better, remember that there are many different paths to healing. You might have to experiment for a bit until you figure out what works for you. So if you're struggling with an addiction yourself or you love someone who is, visit allsober.com for more information. The website offers information and resources about how to get help. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.